Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer. I'm Rob Shank, host of this podcast, which is sponsored by the Dietrich Bunhofer Institute in Washington, D.C. You can find out all about the Institute by visiting our website at www.tdbi for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute.org, tdbi.org. You'll read about our mission there. We spend a lot of time looking at, learning about, considering the implications of the thoughts, uh, experience, life of this remarkable church leader who lived uh, in 1920s, 1930s uh, Germany into the 40s, did most of his work as a Christian ethicist, as a moral philosopher, as a prophetic voice, not to mention as the pastor he was ordained to be in the German evangelical church. while he was in his 20s and 30s, a very young man, a brilliant mind. And I've said this probably a hundred times, well, maybe not a hundred, but getting close to, that if you only know Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a martyr, you know very little about Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he left us a marvelous body of work on the subjects of Christian ethics, morality, the church, on theology in general. And I would I would argue that he was one of the most brilliant moral philosophers and theologians of the last 100 plus years. But that's just showing my bias. Uh, what we do here in Shank Talks Bonhoeffer is we do look at the life, the times, the interest, the thoughts of this on really unique Christian leader and uh, how those things apply to the exigencies of our own time. And I do that in a particular conversation in this episode with an old acquaintance, uh, an eminent scholar, uh, Dr. Robert Erickson of Pacific Lutheran University, was in town recently, and I had a reunion with him after a 10-year hiatus. Uh, I had consulted with him during my doctoral work uh, at my alma mater uh, when I was in Tacoma, Washington, at Faith Evangelical Lutheran Seminary, and he was of enormous help to me. Uh, Dr. Erickson is an expert on the Holocaust, which, of course, is the backdrop to the whole Bonhoeffer drama. And uh, he happened to be in town uh, moderating a tribute uh, presentation, a panel presentation for another Bonhoeffer scholar, Vicki Barnett, who has been a guest on this podcast before. And uh, while he was here, we got together. Uh, I convinced him uh, to go over to the National Press Club, where I'm a member, and borrowed a studio there. And this is where I need to apologize to you, because you would think that a studio at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. would be one of the best acoustical environments you could imagine to record a podcast. It wasn't. In fact, it was terrible. And you're going to hear the echo in the room when Bob, as I know him, and I are talking. But I hope you'll forgive that uh, in interest of the content, which is remarkable. And you're going to hear a shocking story about a individual I was taught in my evangelical Bible college to revere. And he has a very dark history when it comes to the Hitler regime and Nazism and the horror that was the Holocaust perpetrated uh, by Hitler and his regime. And we're going to talk about that. I hope you'll stick with the conversation. It's really worth it. And you're going to read more about Bob Erickson and his contribution to the discussion about parallels to our own time, what happened with the church in Germany and what is happening in our own day. So I'm going to take you to the National Press Club, where Bob and I are in conversation, inviting you to eavesdrop. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. So here's Bob Erickson and me talking 
at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Well, Professor, uh, great to have you today for this conversation. Thank you so much for here in Washington. I couldn't miss the opportunity to have a conversation with you, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Allow me to give you a rather uh, formal introduction, well-deserved. Uh, Robert Erickson, Kurt Mayer Chair in Holocaust Studies Emeritus and Professor of History at Pacific Lutheran University, earned his PhD in History at the London School of Economics. He is the author or editor of five books and more than 40 articles or book chapters all of his work has dealt with two major institutions in Germany during the Nazi period, churches and universities. His first book, Theologians Under Hitler, Gerhard Kittel, Paul Althaus, and Emanuel Hirsch, Yale University Press, uh, was made into a documentary film of the same name, produced by Vital Visuals, which is headed by our good mutual friend, Steve Martin, who also happens to be secretary to the Board of Governors for the Bonhoeffer Institute, sponsor of this podcast. So we're in the family here, uh, and it very much feels that way. You also edited with uh, Susanna Heschel of Dartmouth College, Betrayal, German Churches and the Holocaust, published by Fortress. And your most recent book is Complicity in the Holocaust, churches and universities in Nazi Germany. And I don't know whether you've finished uh, the, the uh, most recent uh, project with Cambridge University Press, Christians in Nazi Germany. Has that published yet? They are still waiting for my completed manuscript. Oh. And uh, they, it's interesting because they send me a quarterly report of the sales of complicity in the Holocaust how many books were sold, my royalties, and then they have a line for Christians in Nazi Germany, and every three months it comes in at zero sales, <laughs> which uh, I hope to change if I can actually get them the finished manuscript before long. Well, I think uh, our listeners on this podcast may help you to change that number once it rolls out, because it's of keen interest Thank you. to us, this whole question of Christians, churches, and uh, I want to get to that as soon as possible. But first, uh, I'd like our folks who join us in these conversations listening in just to get to know a little bit about our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal odyssey? How is it you came to this subject matter? What got you here? Uh, there are two or three steps in this odyssey, and the first and important one is that uh, my grandmother, who came from Norway to the United States about the turn of the last century, settled in South Chicago. Uh, all four of my grandparents were immigrants and arrived at that same location, two from Sweden, two from Norway. And this grandmother of mine, who, I, who actually lived in our household when I was a kid, uh, she was a member of a group in Norway called the Hauge Honor. Hans Nielsen Hauge was a pietist reformer in late 19th century Norway. And uh, my grandmother raised three sons. The oldest was my father. And all three of them became Lutheran pastors. I see. And then her younger brother, who was born in Norway, came over to the U.S. and became a Lutheran pastor. So two uncles, one great uncle. I have four brothers, and two of my brothers became Lutheran pastors. So I spent my childhood and early life, and of course the rest of my life, surrounded by these members of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the old Norwegian Lutheran Church in my father's day. And uh, that oriented me toward theological questions, Lutheran doctrine, and the realization, of course, that Martin Luther was a German and that Germany was a very Lutheran country. As an undergraduate, I gravitated toward history and especially German history. 
And so I went directly into graduate school, first of all in a master's program at Stony Brook, and uh, then a little bit later in this PhD program in London. And for the PhD program, I suggested right away that I would like to look at the question of Nazi Germany in light of the, the churches because of my own background and interest and uh, also in light of the universities since I was a budding academic and the church and the university they were both institutions that I valued and yet I and so I want not yet uh, but so I wanted to look at how they responded to the rise of Hitler and in your upbringing, did you hear any conversation about the churches in that period? Was there any critique? Was there any conversation about that subject matter? There was, and it was just one conversation, and it was about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So when I was a teenager, uh, I read letters and papers from prison, for example. I was introduced... Now, I don't want to date you. <laughs> what, what years this, was that this, this would have been the early 60s. Okay. And you're welcome to date me uh, <laughs> in that sense. Uh, well, age is revered in, in uh, the Institute's culture. Oh, well, good. So compliments to yes. you. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you. So in the early 60s, I recognized what we Americans considered the absolute heroism of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, later on, Eberhard Bethke, uh, Clint, friend, relative by marriage, and biographer of Dietrich Bonhoeffer told me that he used to love coming to the United States and Canada because in the 60s and 70s he was always received with open arms for our appreciation of Bonhoeffer. And in Germany, when I arrived in the 70s, Bonhoeffer was still very controversial and many people who went to church in Germany at that time, including this one couple from whom I rented a room, uh, just considered Bonhoeffer a traitor. Because, so, of, because uh, of his opposition to the head of state, yes. uh, Adolf Hitler, and his participation in the attempt to overthrow Hitler. So um, my experience was, first of all, this one really heroic character, very important theologian, and a person whose dramatic life story was of great interest and is of great interest. And I didn't have any introduction into the kinds of issues we're going to talk about now. Uh, other theological, I mean, I've heard the names Karl Barth and Paul Tillich and things like that. Um, but I didn't have any other insight. And in fact, when I arrived at the London School of Economics, I had the expectation that I would find within the church and within the university the sort of people who lived through the Nazi regime, the 12 years of the Third Reich, and also uh, recognized, would have recognized many of the horrors of that regime. And for whatever reason, although I expected they would have disapproved uh, theologians and pastors for spiritual reasons and academics for intellectual reasons. Um, my goal was to understand in what way they responded and if they disapproved how we could establish that and also uh, under what circumstances they felt perhaps threatened. I was aware that there were very very few Dietrich Bonhoeffers in Germany uh, in this academic uh, church uh, relationship, but uh, the story comes out, as you well know, that I had to change my recognition of what those theologians and what those pastors and what those academics were thinking and doing at the time. Indeed, and you've helped us all immensely with your work, and it's interesting uh, that while you've treated this uh, academically and theoretically and philosophically, it was also a personal yes. encounter yes, it for was. you. Yes. And I can feel that even in your telling of, of the story. I've never asked you 
if did you pursue ordained ministry or always an academic course? Always an academic course. And uh, I mentioned that I have four brothers, two of whom became Lutheran pastors, my oldest brother, and then I was the fourth of five, the younger brother also. And as an undergraduate, I wasn't sure where I was headed, and I certainly considered the possibility of following uh, my dad and my older brother to Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and I even took a year of Greek in anticipation that I might do that. But by the time I graduated, um, I had decided, in fact, this is a very old traditional idea of, do you feel the call? Exactly. And I decided if I didn't have a very distinctive call, I should go to graduate school, which is what I chose to do. Well, frankly, I'm glad you pursued the other call oh, well, on your you. life as an historian <laughs> and uh, as an academic. Uh, thank you for that, because uh, I certainly benefited from it. In fact, we were just reflecting before we started recording that it was 10 years ago we sat down at a lunch table yes. while I was doing my doctoral work quite late yeah. in life. Uh, and it touched on Bonhoeffer, yes. but in the end I ended up finishing on political idolatry, mm -hmm. and your work was immensely helpful to me, so thank you for that. Oh well, thank you. Uh, a little late uh, saying so uh, from me to you, but well, uh, if you don't mind, I'll kind of hurry forward and, well, in a sense, I guess we're going backwards to your first book. That's true. Which I still consult regularly. I pull it off my shelf in my study. Theologians Under Hitler came out in 80... 85. 85. Yeah. Still going strong. Yes. Because in my world, it's referenced routinely. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's uh, just excellent. And I want to go there for a couple of reasons. One, because it is personal mm -hmm. to me. I used Gerhard Kittel yes. in the Evangelical Bible College in which I was trained for ministry. No one ever mentioned his association with the Nazi Party, his support for Adolf Hitler. This was never even broached. It was a shock to me to discover that 25 years after using Kittle yeah. as a regular resource. And of course, I'm sure that's true of many with the other theologians you touch on. But can we go there very quickly, just for folks who may not be familiar with the names of Hirsch and Althaus and Kittle and those like them, and talk a little bit about this problem of theologians who we would expect would have been dissenters, mm -hmm and who would have opposed Adolf Hitler and Nazism, but in fact embraced both Hitler and Nazism. Exactly. Can we, can we talk about that and, and, and how you treat that question in theologians under Hitler? Yes. Let's talk about uh, Gerhard Kittel first. And as you mentioned, you were using his Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He Indeed. was the founding editor of that massive and still important work. And just two years ago, I was giving a talk in Lucerne, in Switzerland, and uh, I, I was talking about Kittel, among other things, and one of the women who presented at that conference, an ordained pastor and a professor of theology, said when she had studied at Tübingen, they all had to read Gerhard Kittel, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and it was so routine, they simply called it the Kittel. You know, everyone studied. We the would Kittle. refer to it as Kittle. Go yeah, to Kittle. Exactly. On that. Go to Kittle on that. And uh, Kittle himself was a very pious Christian. And in fact, one thing I stress about these three men, they were there are some academic theologians who aren't very pious. Uh, there were some nineteenth century theologians in Germany who looking at the scriptures and you know, interpretation and historical uh, discussion of how the scriptures were created and so forth uh, became atheists. These three men each wrote about and expressed their understanding of accepting Jesus into their hearts as not just 
nominal Christians, but as pious Christians. Kittle himself uh, had daily devotions with his wife and children where they would read a passage from the Bible, sing a hymn, have a little homily and a prayer. Uh, these were very Christian men, very pious men. And Gerhard Kittel, as I approached him and studied him, uh, was probably the most important Christian anti-Semite in Germany <laughs> in the 12 years of the Third Reich. He began already in May of 1933, so well, he joined the Nazi party that month. And uh, he'd already had politics that were very close and supportive of Hitler's approach to German nationalism and, and, and authoritarian or autocratic leadership and so forth. Um, Kittel hated the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, the development of democracy, and that was true of all three of these guys. Um, and Would have been one of the reasons he was so well liked by the Bible college in which I was trained. Okay, I don't doubt it. In any case, um, in a book, uh, first of all a talk and then a book called Die Judenfrage, The Jewish Question, Kittel in 1933 laid out an analysis of the Jewish threat, the Jewish problem, which resembled in almost every instance the Nazi analysis of the Jewish crisis or the Jewish problem. We have to remember that Jews were less than 1% of the German population, about 500,000 Jews in a nation of 60 million people. And Kittel in this book said that Jews were trying to and about to destroy Germany because of their 2,000 years of increasing hostility toward everyone else and especially the Christian world. And on that basis, he said, we must make a change. He mentioned four possibilities. One was which to kill all the Jews. In 1933, he said this, and then he said, well, it hasn't worked before, it won't work now. And then he thought maybe assimilation with Jews just fitting into German culture. And he said, that's even more dangerous because once they assimilate, you can't always tell who they are, but they still are the same evil Jew. And then uh, he said, the best solution would be, I actually proposed we could send them all to uh, back to Israel, but that wouldn't work out and the political problems would be intense. So he said, we must take away their citizenship and create a category of a Jew within Germany and then we can still be a completely legal nation but we can create a set of laws that make sure that Jews cannot be professors or journalists or teachers or politicians or uh, novelists or have any position, doctors, lawyers, that is influential and in this way we can save ourselves from the Jewish menace. Now, it wasn't until 1935 that the Nuremberg racial laws banned intermarriage uh, between Jews and non-Jews and also uh, took away citizenship from the Jews of Germany. So Kittel was two years ahead of Nazi policy on that. And in your, uh, uh, perhaps you've treated this, pardon my yeah, ignorance, yeah. Uh, if you have, but which, which would have come first? The Nazi position, Kittel's position, could could they have been informed by Kittel's writing? Was it, was it published enough for them to have that as an information source? They were very aware of it. Kittel himself described himself as the theological expert on Jews who would be invaluable to the Nazi regime and the hierarchy because of his expertise. And I, I'm further crushed. Well, <laughs> yes, I hadn't even understood it to that depth. I yeah. didn't know it was that yeah. abject. And it's hard to know how seriously he was taken by the upper echelons of the Nazi hierarchy. But he was widely recognized within the Nazi movement as an important figure. And I'll go to a second example of this. Um, there was the creation of an institute for 
the de-Judaization of Germany. And one of the, the main publication was research on the Jewish question, Forschungen zur Judenfrage. And that particular organization, founded in 1935, Kittel spoke it at the opening convention. He was, his article appeared in the first edition, it was an annual journal, and in the seven editions of that journal that were published, he was the most uh, significant contributor with seven contributions to those seven volumes. One, one volume didn't have a contribution from Kittel, one had two contributions, and actually one of the seven, the seventh volume was entirely written by Kittel and one colleague, colleague, so that Kittle became a really important figure in this important journal that was founded by the Nazi party and uh, for, developed for Nazi purposes. So he committed, from 1933 on, he committed his scholarship not to the New Testament, which was his field, not to biblical analysis, but rather to the kind of uh, sort of archaeological, anthropological evidence he thought he could find in the story of the Jews from 500 BCE to 500 CE, where he thought the Jews went wrong from being, well, this was the, of course the diaspora, and he said the Jews of the Old Testament were perfectly okay, so he wasn't going to throw out the Old Testament as other Christians yes. in Germany were ready to do. Uh, but he said once they dispersed, no longer had their own nation spread out among other people, uh, they were farmers originally, now they were urban, they developed all of the worst traits of urban residents, uh, they developed a culture that was, and by the way, this is essentially the protocols of the elders of Zion. Yes, the, the scurrilous forgery that was produced about the turn of the last century uh, within Russia by the Russian secret police. Uh, there's a nice exhibition on this at the Holocaust Museum, by the way. And, here uh, in Washington, D.C. Here in Washington, D.C., excuse me. And, uh, and Kittel does not cite the protocols but his work from 1933 to 1944 all discussed the Jews as trying to take over the world, a serious threat to take over the world. This is, of course, an incredible fantasy, not based in fact at all, and, and uh, quite ridiculous if you look at the number of Jews in the world and, and you know all of the exaggerations which made it seem that the Jews run everything from banking to medicine, etc. In any case, this was Gerhard Kittel's career for 11 years, and it's hard to find any theology that he worked on. He actually continued to edit the Kittel, uh, and so he did have that ongoing role. He was, remained a professor of theology for the entire time at Tübingen University, with a guest professorship also at Vienna. Uh, but uh, his uh, his incredibly brutal anti-Semitism uh, continued and in 1944 he gave a guest lecture at Vienna in which he said uh, the Enlightenment 200 years ago or 150 years ago allowed Jews civilian citizenship, allowed them to enter into our world democracy allowed voters to determine the course of government and it's only, oh, before the 18th century Christians knew enough to put Jews in the ghetto and seal them off with walls or with special clothing. And this is 44. And, and this is in 44 and by the way Kittel knew from 1943 that Jews were being murdered on the Eastern Front and then he described Adolf Hitler as a twin bulwark alongside the Christian church in recognizing and turning back the Jewish menace. Let, let's sit with that for just a second. It's pretty uncomfortable. It's, wow. Yeah. Uh, he would survive the end of the war. Yes, he did. And tell us what happened to he, him. He was arrested. 
he was at the Tübingen was in the French zone of occupation, and in the first week of May, the French knocked on the door and arrested Kittel. He died two years later. He was incarcerated for about 17 months because he was so well known as an adherent of the Nazi cause and a public voice. Therefore, uh, we have two things. One is uh, his own attempt to purge himself of guilt. So he went through a, a trial, a two-stage trial, and he produced something called my testament or my de a defense statement. And uh, in this defense statement, uh, he said that he was no more anti-Semitic than Jesus or Paul. And he cited a few passages, of course, from the New Testament to try to prove that. And uh, he defended all of his work, never had second thoughts. He died before he could be, he, he lost his position both with the, uh, with the volume on the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and, uh, and also at Tübingen. And he never retained those positions again or was placed back in those positions. And then he died at a relatively young age of 58. And um, so we don't know what it would have happened later, but for such a prominent figure in the theological world, and what I still have to say, someone I still have to describe as a pious Christian in his own behavior and self-understanding, uh, we get this brutal anti-Semitism and this uh, thoroughgoing support of what Hitler and the Nazi party were doing. And that would be enough to leave us all aghast and for you have to have treated one, but Kittle was not alone. He was not alone. Right. You have two others, yes. Paul Althaus and uh, Emmanuel Hirsch. Yeah. And then there were more. Yes. There were certainly lesser lights yes. uh, in Germany. Right. We're doing exactly the same thing. And there may be some who are still choking on your description of Kittle as a pious Christian anti-Semite. Yes. Because some would see that as an oxymoron, right. as a, a self-canceling description. And yet it just wasn't so. There were many pious Christians yes. who were not just anti-Semites, but they were Nazis. They were supporters of Adolf Hitler, and they continued to defend him even after the war was lost, Hitler had committed suicide. It was obvious that the Nazi project was a catastrophe for the world, and yet, like Kittel and others, they continued to support this. And I think if, if anyone joining this conversation has not read Theologians Under Hitler, it's mandatory. Well, thank you. Especially because I'm going to fast forward us sure. a little bit and ask you if you see any parallels in our own time. I understand, of course, we all have to be cautious. There will never be another 1933 uh, Germany. There will never be another Third Reich. Mm -hmm. There will never be another Adolf Hitler. It was unique. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, we certainly must be able to draw lessons from all of this. And that's why I say your volume, not just Theologians Under Hitler, but the rest of your work as well. I'm, I'm hoping everybody right now is going uh, to Amazon and putting your name in, which by the way, I have to point out is spelled E-R-I-C-K-S-E-N, yes. not the O-N brand, but the E-N, uh, the Scandinavian. Um, right. Norwegian, Norwegian. Uh, Norwegians and Danes use the S-E-N, and my ah. father all, always very carefully protected that E. Uh, Swedes use S-O-N, so ah. there's that distinction. I don't think it's bitterness between the two nations. <laughs> right. But uh, I had to remind myself a couple of you. times when I was writing you into my exactly. calendar to make sure it was the S-E-N spelling. Um, so what about our own day? Do you see lessons that apply directly in our own time? Do you see any parallels to, to uh, the, the individuals you treat, Kittle, Hirsch, uh, Althaus? 
Uh, I'm going to uh, not evade your question, but I want to add a couple of very quick things, and then my answer to your question is, yes, I believe there are parallels, and that it's an ongoing question for Christians, not just since the Nazi era, but before the Nazi era, and up to the present day. But the two things I want to add, uh, I talked too long about Kittel perhaps, but Paul Althaus, who was the greatest Luther scholar in the world from the 1930s to the 1960s, he said when Hitler rose to power, we Christians accept this as a gift and miracle from God. Uh, my wife says I've never given a talk where I haven't quoted Althaus on a gift and miracle from God, which is pretty astonishing. I learned that, incidentally, from you. Yes. And I have repeated it myself countless times, yeah. particularly in sermons. Yes, okay. Because it's so stunning. It's so stunning. People just assume if you were a Christian, you were opposed to Adolf Hitler as yeah. an antichrist. Yeah. No, some saw him as a form or expression of Christ. Not just okay or the best of two evils or something like that, but a gift from God, a miracle from God. And Immanuel Hirsch, who was the greatest Kierkegaard scholar in Germany of his day. Kierkegaard, very important to modern theology, to philosophy, uh, to existentialism and so forth. Even and my fellow evangelicals who may not have even heard of Kierkegaard have been informed in many ways and shaped you. by Kierkegaard. I agree. And uh, Hirsch was so adamant as a supporter of uh, Hitler that in 1945 he too, as Kittel, was not arrested but was immediately removed from his position and until his death in 1973 he was never allowed back into the faculty at Göttingen University. So these are two very prominent additional figures, very pro-Nazi. And now we get to the question of are there parallels to consider? And again I'm going to go back to 1933 first of all because the voting analysis of Hitler's rise to power and he never received a majority uh, he came into at about 40% for Nazi party votes. It's the highest he got, but in their parliamentary system, the Nazis were the single most powerful party in Germany. And in January of 1933, President von Hindenburg appointed Hitler as the Chancellor of Germany to create a cabinet. And from that point on, uh, he quickly uh, grabbed full power. In fact, he had dictatorial power by March 23rd, so within less than two months, uh, he'd convinced the parliament to pass the legislation, they called it the Enabling Act, uh, which gave him a period of dictatorship without the need for a parliamentary vote, and autocracy was fully in place and he never gave it up. But in any case, the only way that Hitler had this large block of support within the parliament, this 40% roughly support from the country, was based upon the most pious Protestant regions of Germany. So northern Protestant, Protestant voters, the voting analysis is clear, they put Hitler in power. Uh, one reason is that the Catholic voters had their own Catholic party, the center party, and so although later they, many, many or most Catholics supported the Nazi regime, they weren't voting for Hitler before 1933. So Protestant voters played this very large role. And of course, the first parallel that's of interest is that in today's American politics, there is the so-called evangelical Christian vote, which firmly supported Donald Trump in 2016, and according to all polling processes, remains firmly in support as part of the base for a particular brand of a politics of politics in today's America. I've just spent some time at the Holocaust Museum uh, for sessions we had yesterday, in honor, in fact, of a great historian of the Nazi period, Victoria Barnett. Also a great Bonhoeffer scholar and friend. A very of important Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer scholar. And, uh, and one of the early uh, authors describing um, the challenges of the church uh, beginning already in 1933. 
In any case, incidentally, uh, Vicki Barnett has been a guest with me in this conversation. Hello. So if you're interested in that and you're listening in, uh, find our podcast with uh, Dr. Victoria Barnett. Thank you. And um, the parallels at the museum with what I've been talking about today include messages like if you look at the front door of the museum, uh, the main entrance, you see a placard that talks about if you see injury, if you see hatred, if you see injustice, stand up against it. And we have parallels in the sense that Adolf Hitler relied upon the condemnation of one tiny group of Germans and the Jews and blamed Germany's problems, the inflation period, the depression, other issues with, in fact, modernization. Uh, he blamed um, prostitution and pornography on this tiny little minority, which of course makes little or no sense. Uh, even if Jews participated in some portions of that part of German life, uh, there were so many non-Jews also uh, doing the kinds of things that made especially middle-class Christian Germans unhappy or um, suffering a little future shock in the 1920s, for example. In any case, to stigmatize a minority group with vicious language was how the Nazis came to power. And to the extent that we in America accept a stigmatization of a minority group, that has some sort of parallel with the Nazi regime, and it should concern us. To the extent that we begin to apply harsh measures, imprisonment without judicial authority, for example, or retention in harsh conditions, we begin to emulate in a certain way the kinds of concentration camps that were first created in Germany, which were extra legal, they didn't go through a judicial process, sometimes they did, and didn't involve murder, gas chambers, the whole Holocaust, which was not in place until 1941. Yes, people, I think, imagine that Hitler came right out of the gate yeah, absolutely. with this murderous machinery, with the uh, extermination, extermination camps, camps yeah. but not so. The gas chambers, the uh, firing squads, and that didn't happen until the outbreak of World War II. There were certainly a number of extrajudicial killings happening on the Eastern Front in 1940. Even 1939 and 40, but the first death camp was created in December of 1941, and then Auschwitz the next year, and so forth. So there were steps, there were gradations in the policies that Hitler introduced. All of those policies were based upon a certain contempt for democracy, and in fact, Hitler was able to achieve his dictatorial position within two months because of what he found up as the crisis circumstance in Germany. And there was a serious set of crises, Great Depression. Uh, of course, Germany had lost World War I and suffered tremendous uh, difficulties in the post-war and, and humiliation in the post-war period. And of course, uh, he blamed the Jews and he blamed, similarly for Yeah, he blamed Jews for having caused all of that for the defeat. And of course, it was a defeat by France, England, the United States, and the Soviet Union. Um, but in any case, uh, with this emergency atmosphere, Hitler took over this strong man, powerful control, and his supporters loved it, and it included a great deal of brutality and uh, verbal attack against certain minorities within the country. If we look for warning signs, for example, for me, we started talking about my youth as the son of a Lutheran pastor and surrounded by Lutheran pastors, uh, there's a sort of idealism there that assumes that, well, let's take the Jesus of 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or uh, whatever you have done for the least of these, my brethren, you have done unto me. If we take the compassion of Jesus' message and apply it to our understanding of today's world, in Nazi Germany, that compassion disappeared. In fact, from the very beginning, as I, as I began looking over several years of research to what Kittel and Althaus and Hirsch were saying, I kept asking myself, well, what happened to the Golden Rule? What happened to Jesus' compassion? They somehow were able to edit the second that. of the greatest commandments. Yeah, yeah. What is the greatest commandment? Love God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself. And they somehow were able to create a rational explanation that under circumstances so extreme for the good of Germany, and if you understood love of God and love of Germany as a pair, then it was, it was necessary to face up to harsh decisions and harsh circumstances in a harsh, even a brutal way, to save the greater good of Germany and of Christian Germany. And I think that we're always in the possibility, under the threat, that we might see our own concerns as so important and so threatening that somehow, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, when Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, uh, that we can ignore that for the moment because we have higher concerns. And uh, that temptation is always there. And I do think there is, uh, you know, for example, the attack on the press, the attack on democratic institutions. I f firmly believe that American democracy, as it developed while imperfect, was leading the world. And the free world, as we used to call it, uh, the European Union, uh, which is a creation, really, of post-war United States policy, that there are all these tremendous successes moving in that direction. And right now, we are tempted to leave behind those traditions, those democratic values. And it strikes me that that violates a central portion of Christian doctrine. And, and if Jesus called it the second most important commandment, I think we could listen to that. And um, if we take that seriously, it gives me pause as to where we are in today's America. I must mention here that it was at no other place than the inaugural prayer service for the current president, Donald Trump, that I confronted a colleague, the leader of one of the largest evangelical institutions in this country, and I said to him, I think it is urgent that we uh, teach our folks anew the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. And he said, I don't have time for that. We have real problems we must address now. That was one of the most disheartening things. I'm rarely speechless. I was speechless at that moment to think that we could dismiss the core of Jesus' teaching because of what we see as political exigencies brings us right back. It does. To the period you have treated so yes. exhaustively. And thank you for doing so because I don't see you principally, uh, my dear professor, as an historian, though you are <laughs> a church historian, but rather as a prophetic voice in our time. So I'm hoping folks will go back to your work in Theologians Under Hitler, read it carefully, and look for those parallels because, as Bonhoeffer and others warned, we must speak early, not late. And while some will say, oh, come on, don't make such extreme comparisons to Hitler and Nazism and Germany and that period, the whole point is, we don't want to get anywhere near that. We must speak now. And had the church in Germany been, uh, I would argue, had been in touch with its 
core principles and its uh, theological mandates, it would not have supported Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. What lessons for our own day? And I want to thank you for helping us understand the importance of that, how critical it is. It's absolutely critical. And I'll bring it to back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as I always do, because yes. uh, the way I see it, I, I wonder if you would agree, Bonhoeffer's main project, his calling, if you will, seemed to be to, pr to, to preserve the integrity of the church and the gospel and the ministry and message of Christ in his day. I think that's the mandate of our own time. That's what we must be doing now, is preserving the integrity of the gospel, which is threatened with uh, becoming a, nothing more than something at the service of a political, uh, a political movement. If that should happen, we lose the gospel altogether. So this is, this is extremely important on so many levels, and I want to thank you for the conversation. Professor Erickson, thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for your prophetic voice in our time. Thank you so much. I'm glad we've had this conversation. And I hope I we'll have another. It. Very good. The book is Theologians Under Hitler by Robert Erickson, spelled that S-E-N, and you'll find the rest of his work listed in the same places. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>